How's everybody? Y'all doing okay? Yeah? Awesome, man. Great to be with you this morning. Man, great time of worship together. Um, hey, listen, if you um, have not picked up one of these guys right here, this is our prayer and fasting guide. Remember, we're doing a 15-day challenge, prayer and fasting together, as we seek to make God the priority of our lives. If, uh, if you have not picked up one of these, man, this is awesome. I'd encourage you to do so. They're right out there. You can join us at any point um, and just pick up in the journey. It's been awesome for me and for my life. I know it will be for you as well. Um, so, uh, last week we talked about, again, we kind of continue this story of cultivating a life with God, and we've, uh, last week I challenged you with this idea of, is God the priority, is He a priority? And, and one of the ways I did that was, was this piece of paper. You know, this is not a, it's not a really special piece of paper, although for me it is, because on it you can see this, it says, my priorities. And on here I've got my priorities listed on this piece of paper. Um, But the challenge I gave to you last week was, is God a bullet point on your priority list or is he the piece of paper in which you write your priorities? Right? Is he just the piece of paper or is he just a bullet on the piece of paper or is he the piece of paper in your life? Is he a priority or is he the priority? Because here's what I'll tell you, when God is the priority in your life, all the rest of the priorities that you have listed on that piece of paper will begin to change. They'll begin to change. Uh, God will begin to transform each and every one of them. So, so the way that you parent will change. The way that you care for and you love your spouse will change. The way you see your friendships will change. The way you work will change. The way you coach on the ball field will change. The way you play an instrument will change. Everything about your life will change when God is the priority in your life. And so we're going to continue that, uh, that discussion as making God the priority in our lives. But here's what I want to share with you this morning. This is my one point, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump in. I want you to see that when God is the priority of our lives, He transforms what we have to offer to other people. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Christianity is not just about you. It's not less than that, but it's not just for you. It's for all people, right? And so God enters into your world, begins to transform your life, not just for your sake, but for the sake of the people in your life, right? He puts you in places for you to be a witness. That's why Paul says that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are representatives of God's kingdom on this earth. It's not just about you, it's about all of us, right? And so again, when you make him the priority of your life, he begins to transform your heart so that you actually have something to share with the people in your life. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. We're going to be in John chapter 4. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 4, we're going to read almost all of it together. I know you wanted to read a lot this morning. I felt like the Lord was leading me there, that that you wanted some extra reading. So we're going to read verses 1 through 42, 1 through 42 this morning. And we're going to hope that I can pronounce everything right and we'll be all right, okay? All right, get there. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, here's the word of the Lord. This is John writing. Here's what John observes. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. By the way, there was competition in the New Testament era. So all of you folks who were very competitive yesterday, you have hope. I have hope. I have great hope. 
Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means it's in the afternoon. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I picture the woman a little baffled right here. Living water, okay. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, how in the world are you going to do that? You have no water, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you give that, get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's important. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give uh, will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then the woman said to him, sir, oh, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come here to draw water. I think she missed the point, do you? I think she missed the point there. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, well, go and call your husband and come here. So the woman answered him, well, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is, your, is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he is going to tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and, he, and went on her on her way into the town, and, he, and she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I've ever done. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest, or white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which for you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that labor." 
Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we just read your word. And Lord, what you remind us is that your word does not return void. And so I ask as we unpack this, God, would you open our hearts and our minds and you would transform us from the inside out. God, that you would make us, or that that we would make you the priority in our lives today as we consider what you have for us in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what I love about this story, which by the way, is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, which is why I wanted to read it to you, because honestly, I can't say it any better than John did. So I thought, you know what, we'll just read it together. But you may notice that there's three scenes in this text, okay? There's three scenes. The first scene is the story of Jesus and the woman, right? Jesus has sent his disciples off to get some food, and while they're away, he makes the decision to go through Samaria to visit this woman. Now, here's the deal, right? Uh, There's three different ways that he could have gone in order to get back to Galilee. He's leaving Judea. He's heading to to Galilee, heading back home. He's going to do some more ministry in Galilee. And so he goes through Samaria, which by the way is a no-no. Why in the world would anybody, especially a Jew, go through Samaria? It's dangerous. It's the road less traveled. And yet, rather than taking the other two options, Jesus goes directly through Samaria cultural no-no. Why in the world would Jesus do this? Well, the answer is because he has a divine appointment. John wants us to see that Jesus went out of his way in order to meet with this woman at the well. And so Jesus sits down, wearied from his journey. He's waiting for this woman to show up in the afternoon, which by the way, she's there in the afternoon because of her life story Right? She didn't want to go with the women in the morning or at night. She goes in the afternoon so she doesn't have to deal with the shame and guilt of her decisions. And there, she meets Jesus. And so Jesus begins to interact with her. And it's kind of interesting, right? So she has no idea who she's talking to. And so they're interacting. And all of a sudden, it goes from, hey, how are you, to, hey, let's talk about some deep theology, right? Deep theology. He goes, hey, can you get me a drink? And she's like, yeah, sure, I'll get you a drink. I mean, this is kind of weird, but yeah, I'll get you a drink, whatever. And then he goes into, or, 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 then they go into this whole narrative where, where, where Jesus says, if you knew who I am, then you would ask me for a drink. And she's like, well, why in the world would I do that? You don't even have anything to get water for. I go, why would I ask you for a drink? And he says, because again, if you knew who I am, you would know that the water that I provide is lasting and it will satisfy your thirst. It's not like Gatorade. It'll actually quench the thirst. It won't make you thirsty, more thirsty. It'll satisfy the thirst is what Jesus is saying, right? He goes on to say um, that, again, if you knew who I am, you wouldn't be asking me for, for a drink of water because, again, everyone who drinks of this well will continue to be thirsty, but everyone who drinks of the water that I offer will never be thirsty again. And then it goes from there to Jesus kind of reading her mind, right? Okay, let's take this a step further. Clearly, she's not getting it. So she's, Jesus says, well, hey, you know what? Here's what we'll do. Why don't you go get your husband, bring him here, and we'll continue this conversation. Maybe he can kind of help mediate this. When she looks back at Jesus, she's like, well, I can't. I can't, can't go get my husband. I don't, I don't have one. And here's where Jesus blows her mind. 
right? He dials deep into the secret places of her heart and begins to bring to light all that she's ever done. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have five husbands, and the one that you're living with is not your husband either. You got to imagine, she's thinking, man, this guy's a Jew, never seen him before in my life. There's no reason for him to be here, but he doesn't just, he just doesn't know about me. He knows everything about me, and guess what? He didn't run away like everybody else did. Everybody in her life had run away from her because of her story, and yet here Jesus, a person that she's never met before, sits down, brings to light all of her sin and shame and guilt right before her. She agrees to it, and he doesn't flee and go the other direction. In fact, Jesus actually leans in on top of all that he has just explained to her. On top of that, he finishes the conversation by explaining to her that the kingdom of God is not going to be confined to a geographical location, but, but, but that God's grace and his kingdom is going to be offered to anyone all over the world. And oh, and by the way, he gives a little bit of a small flex and says, and, and just so you know, the Messiah that you spoke of, I, I'm the guy, right? I, I'm him. I'm him. So that that's kind of how we end scene number one. We're going to return to what happens in that in just a minute in scene three. So let's jump to scene two. Scene two is the return of the disciples. It's kind of an interesting part of the story, right? The disciples show up ignorant to what Jesus has been up to. They notice who Jesus is talking to. And you kind of picture in this text them kind of, kind of, kind of looking at Jesus like, Jesus, do you... you you know the culture, right? Like, you know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. I mean, you're Jesus, right? I mean, you, you get that, right? We don't talk to women. We especially don't talk to Samaritans. I mean, they're like the worst of the worst. Do you know who they are? You know where they've been? It's just like a no-no, right? But instead of asking Jesus, they kind of go, well, I mean, it is Jesus, so I guess we'll just kind of shrug it off and we'll keep on going. And then one of the disciples goes, hey, Jesus, we just got back from Whataburger, I've got you a number four, right? Mayo, no mustard, right? Here we go. Do you want, your, you want your meal? And Jesus says something crazy like, you know, thanks guys, but my food is to do the will of my father. And I just picture the disciples, I don't know about you, but I picture the disciples going, what? Like, what does that even mean? You get this kind of interchange between him and Jesus then goes on and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his works. And then in return, Jesus then gives them a theology lesson, teaching them that there's something far more satisfying than the food that they're putting in their mouth. And you know, you, it's like he just kills the dinner vibe. Right here they are, they're hungry, they've been on this long journey, they're just feasting away at their food and Jesus is like, yeah, by the way, you know, there's something far more satisfying than, in life than than what going in your mouth. And I picture Peter like, like mouthful of food, like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm done here, right? It's just this kind of unique way that Jesus goes about with his disciples. And then that leads us to our final scene, right? The woman's just encountered, just had this amazing encounter with Jesus. Just amazing encounter. And it transforms her life. 
right? She has this, this experience with Jesus, and it's not just like any other experience with Jesus. I mean, this guy has read her mail, knows everything about her. Uh, she's experienced some level of transformation to the degree that she leaves that encounter. She runs back to a community who more than likely has rejected her. More than likely, she's living on the fringes to the degree that, again, she wouldn't even come with all of the rest of the women to, uh, to, to get water and bring it back for, the, for her town, right? She's on the outskirts of society, and she, here she comes running into the community, and here's what she says. Come see the man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And then here's the result in verse 39. The result in verse 39 tells us that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The very one in the community who had lost the credibility of the entire town is now the witness by which an entire village hears about the power of the gospel of its life transforming power. So the one who has no credibility now is the one who proclaims the gospel and many people believe because of her testimony. That's the power of the gospel. Her encounter with Jesus transformed her life and changed the course of an entire town. So as Jesus and his disciples walk into this city in this town called Sychar, they're greeted by an entire community of people whose lives have been touched by Jesus through her testimony. A community, again, that to the Jews was off limits, considered less than because they were not a pure race, but they were the result of intermarriages because of the Assyrian invasion. These were a half-breed kind of people, less than those people, other than, ooh, yuck, we don't deal with them. And here, revival's broken out on this woman's testimony, and people are coming to believe, and they're running out to greet Jesus, a Jew, to welcome them into their community. Now here's why all this is important. What this story teaches us is that when we encounter Jesus, God begins to transform the course of our lives and moves us to a greater mission in life than just business as usual. In fact, I believe that he is calling us to a life that is so satisfying in him that offers something of substance to the world around us. That's what this story teaches us, right? This woman who has nothing comes to a well where she meets Jesus and she walks away with everything. So satisfied is she that no longer is she worried about this, what this community has to say about her, no longer worried about her reputation. Who cares about that? I've just met Jesus. I've just had this encounter with Jesus and my life is transformed and you've got to hear it too. By the way, did you know that the best form of advertising still today is word of mouth? But what do you have to share if you've never experienced Jesus? That's a great question for us to think about, isn't it? It's a great question to think about. So, so if God has called us to be ambassadors and representatives of his, of his kingdom, what do we have to share if we have not ever experienced or encountered Jesus? Or, let me put it this way, what do we have to share with our friends, our coworkers, our family members if we are not encountering Jesus? See, if he is just a priority in my life, 
If he's just a part of the list, if he's just a part of my checklist, when I'm sitting down with my coworkers and when I'm with my family or my neighbors, that's not what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking about him. I'm thinking about the conversation. I'm thinking about the cowboys. I'm thinking about what's for lunch or for dinner or whatever it is that is in your world. But when God is the priority, all of a sudden those conversations begin to change because he's no longer a checklist a checkbox on the list. He is the sheet of paper. Now, I was sitting this morning, or this, this week, and I was thinking about all this, and I thought, you know what? Here's the truth of the matter. Our experience with Jesus gives us something to offer. It gives us something to offer to the world. If we are not experiencing him, then chances are we don't have much to offer, spiritually speaking, right? It's kind of like, I was trying to think of a good illustration for this, and I was thinking, you know, um, anytime you get on Amazon, and if you look at the reviews, like say you're looking at some new shoes, right? You've, you know, you need some new Nikes, and you get on there and you're typing in, I want the Nike Zoom Infinity X plus zero percent, because I don't know where they get those n- names, but that's what they are. And you get them, you look at them, and you start looking at all the reviews. You'll see this word up there that says verified buyer. You notice that? Why do they put that there? Because it's hard for you to rate something if you never bought the product in the first place. Our experience with Jesus leads us into a life where we can give the world a review of life in Christ. You see that? See where I'm heading with that? I think there's three obstacles to that. Okay, there's three obstacles that I think oftentimes become kind of the barriers that you and I face Um, when we're sharing with others. Here's the first one. The first one, hear hear me on this. Uh, The first one is a misappropriated encounter. I couldn't think of a better catchier word than that, so we went with that this week. But a misappropriated encounter. Here's what I mean by that. This is someone who might consider themselves to be a Christian, but have never actually had a genuine encounter with Jesus and given their heart to them. Maybe they had an experience at camp. Maybe you were sitting in a service and, and, and something happened, or maybe there's an emotional, emotional uh, thing that happened, and so maybe, maybe you walked an aisle or whatever it is that you did, right? Maybe you had that experience, but really, if, and, and, and you know, but really deep down inside, you never actually gave your heart to Jesus. You know, this is a group of people who would say, you know, um, I'm a good person, right? At the end of the day, right, they might consider themselves a, a Christian because, it, because I'm a good person, I do good things, and, it, and I know that at the end of my life, I'm gonna stand before God, and he's gonna look at all the good things, and, you know, he, I, I just think that God's a good God, and he's a fair God, and so, you know, he's, he's gonna accept, accept me in the club. This is someone who's had some level of an experience, but who's never actually given their heart to Jesus. This is someone who has maybe attempted to write a review, but they never bought the product. Tracking with me? It's a misappropriated encounter. Now, the answer for this group of folks is to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did and to meet him for yourself. If that's you in this room, and maybe, golly, maybe you've had, again, some level of an experience, but you know deep down in your heart that that you never gave your heart to him, you never gave your life to him, right? 
He never became Lord of your life. He never became the priority in your life. Here's the answer. Come and see a man who's told me everything that I did in my life. He's going to bring your sin to light. He's going to bring the sin and the separation that you have before God. And then he's going to offer his son Jesus to you. And you can accept him as a free gift for eternal salvation. That's the answer for you. Okay? If you've never done that, I would love to talk with you about that right after the service. Our team at Connection Central would love to talk with you about that and how you can have a true encounter with Jesus. And it can be genuine and not misappropriated. And you can know for certain right, that you've given your heart over to him. Right? So that's number one. Here's number two. This is what I'm calling a transactional encounter. This is a transactional encounter. A transactional encounter is someone who had a genuine experience with Jesus where he brought to light their sin and need for forgiveness, and in return, they gave their heart to him. They gave their heart to him. They said, yes to Jesus. God, I'm gonna give you my heart. But then they left it there and they went about their business. This is a transactional encounter. This is a person who is saved, but God is not the sheet of paper in their life. And so when it comes to life and priorities, they would say that he is, but He's not, and their time, their talent, and their treasure would reveal that to be true. Over time, where they spend their time, their treasure, and their talent would reveal that there was something is missing in your life. This is the person who has had a transactional relationship with God, but not a transformational fellowship with Him. You see the difference? Like, I can have a relationship and miss out on fellowship right? That's a transactional relationship. Jesus is inviting you into something far greater, far better. He's inviting you to drink from the well that he offers, a, a well that, that satisfies the deepest parts of your soul, right? Now, this is a person who, recognizing that, accepts Jesus's invitation to drink from the water that he offers and is satisfied for a while, but then gets bored and starts looking for something else to satisfy them. Right, this is like that person who buys the product, right, is so excited about it for two weeks, and then gets bored with it, puts it up in the shelf in the garage. And so when it comes to a time when they need to give a review, they don't have much to share because it's been a while since they've experienced that product. I think so often we find ourselves in these conversations and, and you and I, we don't, we don't have anything to share and maybe it's a great gospel opportunity we don't have anything to share because quite frankly, we're not spending any time with God and we're just as unsatisfied with the world and my life as unbelievers are, right? We find ourselves bored and unsatisfied with life so we start looking for cars and money and wealth and status and power and relationships and all those things to the degree that, man, we're looking for satisfaction in all these things, and yet we're the same as them. And so we, we sit down with them, and they're sharing their life, and you're like, golly, man, mine's not much different. What do I have to offer? And we have forgotten that Jesus's invitation to drink from his well is not a one-time kind of thing. It's an everyday, every moment kind of thing. When he invites you to drink from the well that always satisfies, it always overpromises, and always delivers on the overpromise, right? When he says that, he's saying the word drink there is active, it's present. 
It means that we're always drinking. It doesn't mean that we drank one time and then we were good. It doesn't mean that somebody presented it's either heaven or hell and you chose heaven and so then you're good. It completely misses out on the entirety of the New Testament and the story of God's people. Salvation is the beginning of the journey. It's not the destination. Jesus is inviting you into something far greater, far better, far more meaningful and satisfying than anything in the world that world can offer you. And as we take a drink from him, he satisfies our soul so that we have something to offer the people in our lives. So the answer for this group is to recognize that in Jesus' invitation to drink from the water, he offers again not a one-time kind of thing, but an every moment, every day kind of thing. It's an invitation for him to not only be a priority, but to be the entire sheet of paper. For when he is the sheet of paper, a heart satisfied in him cannot help but share what they have in Christ. If you are here this morning and you know God's working in your heart right now and you're like, man, I gosh, I'm no different than them. Well, maybe you need to go back to the beginning and go, Lord, I said yes to you and I gave you my heart, but then I decided to remain the Lord of my life. I decided to walk away from you. By the way, he never left you. You left him. God never leaves you. If you're his, you're his. No, nothing can snatch you out of his hand, right? So, so, so he didn't walk away, you walked away. And so, so, Lord, let me confess that and let me return to you, my king. Number three. Number three is what I'm calling Jonah syndrome. I didn't, I didn't read that anywhere. I don't know if anybody's come up with this or not. I don't know. But Jonah syndrome, here's what it is. This is what the disciples are dealing with. Here they are following Jesus. He takes them to the pit of humanity in their world, the Samaritans. These are the people that are like, oh my gosh, like, do you not know what they do? Do you not know what they stand for? Why in the world, Jesus, would you go out of your way to spend time with them? Gosh, it's horrible. This is to fall into the trap of believing that God's grace is not available to all people always. There's not a person wicked enough on this earth There's not a terrible enough person on this earth that God cannot save. And yet Christians are far too guilty of withholding God's grace because we think we know who God should save and who he shouldn't save because we have forgotten that while I may not be a murderer with my hands, when I hate somebody or when I hold a grudge against somebody, Jesus says that my heart has murdered them. That when I gossip against somebody that is revealing the hate in my heart, right? And so, so maybe I didn't rob somebody, but I know good and well of what's going on in my heart. And Jesus says, I don't measure you by what you do. I measure you by what your heart, the motivations of your heart. And what I can tell you about every person in this room, including myself, is that we are all wicked, that we are left to our own devices, we are all monsters who are desperately broken in need of the grace of God. And it is only by Jesus that any of us have been welcomed to dine at the table of the king. And here's, here's my proof. 
Look at the cross. Look at God's wrath poured out on Jesus. That is a horrific, painful, I mean, just terrible way to die. And yet he bore all of God's wrath. God forsook him on the cross so that he could look to you as his son and daughter and say, I am well pleased with you. Yes. Paul would say, hey, don't cast judgment on these people because such were some of you, right? We are all broken. We are all wicked. And the grace of God had come to your doorstep. And so we cannot be the judge, executioner, jury, and executioner on people in this world. Only God can do that, and only God can save them. For us to do so would be able to fall into this trap of Jonah syndrome, where Jonah, called to go to the Ninevites, goes, God, no, I'm good. I'm not going there. Do you know who those people are? You know how wicked they are? Do you know how horrible they are? I'm not, you, surely you can't save them. Oh, but God can, and God will. And Paul is a great example of that. Paul is a great example of that. If he can extend God's grace to them, we can offer it to the rest of the world too. If God has given us his grace, then we can offer it to the world as well. I'll close with this statement. Very important. Our walk with God leads us to leverage our life for him. Our walk with God leads us to leverage our life for Him. The more time we spend with Him, the more of ourselves we will give Him. And all of a sudden, our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, no longer are the places we live, work, and play, but they become opportunities for you and me to share what I have in Jesus. But I can't share what I don't have. If you're not walking with the Lord, what do you have to offer? That's the reason why this this series is so important for all of us, because we need to be challenged. Are we walking with Him? Are we walking in Him? Are we walking with Him step by step? Or are we just living our lives how we want to live our lives, hoping that in the end it all works out? All the while attempting to be a representative of something that we do not have, nor do we know. That's our challenge this week. He's got to be the priority, not just a priority. And we've got to walk with him so that when the time comes and God's going to provide you those opportunities, we have something to share. Okay? So now here's what we're going to do. We're going to transition our time together where we can spend time at the Lord's table. Okay? So um, as we do that, here's what I want you to reflect on. I want you to just be thinking about this. Do you have something to offer the world around you? Do you have something to offer the world around you? Right, when Peter says, be ready in season and out of season to share the hope of Christ that you have, do you have that hope? Is it genuine? Is it a real hope? Do you reflect on that? And then if so, are you actively sharing it? Are you actively sharing it? Now, if no, I want you to consider a couple of things. There's three things I want to consider. I want you to consider, number one, have you experienced a misappropriated encounter? I want you to think about it. Have you experienced a misappropriated encounter, or was your encounter with Jesus, like the woman at the wells, genuine? 
life-transforming to the degree that you ran back to your community and said, come see a man, come hear about him. A man that's taught me, has, has, has told me everything that I've ever done. Is it genuine? If it's not, again, and if you need salvation, listen, today's the day. The Lord's working in your heart. Um, then I, I want to talk with you. I know our team out here would love to talk with you about how you can begin that relationship. Have you had a misappropriated encounter? Or is it genuine? Number two, I want you to consider, is my relationship with God, is it a transactional relationship or is it transformational fellowship? Is it a transactional relationship or is it transformational fellowship? If it's a transactional relationship, I would encourage you in this moment before we go to the table to say, God, man, I, I put you up on a shelf. I made you a bullet point. No longer. I'm making you the priority of my life. Forgive me and welcome me back to the table. Transformational fellowships, what we're after. Then three, I want you to consider if you've struggled with Jonah syndrome. Maybe there's somebody in your life who you know is outside of the family of God, who's not a Christian in your life. God's placed you on their heart, but you've been reluctant to share the gospel with them because either maybe you don't have something to share or because, golly, they're just, oh, they're grimy. Listen, God does his best work in the grime, muck, and mire. Be reminded where God pulled you out of and maybe is currently pulling you out of and believe the gospel, the life-transforming power of the gospel that was available to you and is available to them.